This is a Geek History of Time. Where we connect nerdery to the real world. I'm Ed Blaylock. I'm a dad in my 40s. I'm a 7th grade world history teacher. I have a Bachelor of Arts in History from the University of California at Davis Go Ags. Focused primarily on Western Europe and East Asia. I'm Damien Harmony. I am also a father in my 40s. I am raising my children to be nerdy and geeky and decent and all various and sundry that go with that. I'm a Latin teacher. I have a master's degree in history, a bachelor's degree in history, both of which focused on women's history, specifically in England. Now I'm focused on ancient Rome. I have been teaching for many, many years and geeking for even longer. Uh, the very first game I ever played uh, that is really of any note is the TSR Marvel role-playing game. And, yeah, we've talked about what a pile of crap that was. Beautiful. <laughs> All percentals, baby. Yeah. Oh, Lord. And uh, my experience uh, dates back to age of nine when I first got introduced to uh, Dungeons and Dragons, thanks to a school enrichment program on weekends, oddly enough, nice. in the 80s, which is kind of weird. Well, we had money for schools back then. Well, yeah. Uh, I was thinking more about the satanic panic. But uh, currently, <laughs> uh, I'm playing... <laughs> In a 5th uh, edition D&D game with Damien, and I'm really excited, as I've mentioned before, about the upcoming release of a new edition of Battletech. Yes, I'm also currently playing in a game with Ed, where we're finding the, the uh, tail end uses of druids and all various and sundry with that. Uh, I'm also running a game for my children, uh, my daughter, who is an arcane trickster halfling, and my son, who is a human barbarian aspect of the bear. I'm looking very much forward to my big, my little brother, uh, Bowie, starting a game of Scion for us via Skype, because and, Scion was amazing. Yeah, and i got to figure out how to make the time to get in on that, because yeah. holy cow. Oh my goodness. Hey, uh, I'm currently reading, actually I'm just about to finish... Uh, Eaton Thomas, or Tan Thomas, the Latinist in me, screws up all the pronunciations. Uh, Mr. Thomas's book called We Matter. It's about uh, activism amongst black athletes and in this current age of uh, striving for social justice and, and what athletes can do to play their part in that. And it's really quite compelling, if not uh, heartbreaking at the same time. Another book that I plan to read afterwards is Punching Nazis and Other Good Ideas by Keith Lowell Jensen, uh, a local... A comedian and a local performer, as well as a local uh, author now. Yeah. Uh, it's a fantastic book. All right. Uh, right now, I'm working my way through At Home by Bill Bryson, a history of modern domesticity mm. uh, and uh, the things that we take for granted uh, in our homes on a day-to-day -day basis. It's actually it's a way more interesting than it sounds, I promise you. Uh, Bryson is a really good writer. He's really funny. Uh, and he's very good at, at uh, putting things in uh, kind of common common sense language, ordinary you know language, and making them entertaining. The other after that, I'm going to pick up and really try to finish "Honor in the Dust," mm. uh, a book about the American occupation of the Philippines in the wake of the Spanish-American War. I don't off the top of my head remember the author's name. Wish I did, but it's a very compelling uh, history, especially in light of uh, the global war on terror. Oh, it's fantastic. So. Yeah, that's uh, So what we do here uh, at uh, Geek History of Time is we take a look at some sort of historical context in which we plug uh, various geeky things. Or in other words, we look at uh, something that tickled us as nerds and then combine it with things that tickled us as historians. Yeah. Or like 
talking about what we're going to be talking about today, something that we've dealt with as nerds that interests us a great deal. As historians, I don't think the CCA is anything that particularly tickles either one of us. But That's a good point. That's I'm, a good point. I'm picking nits there. Yeah. So. Well, nits need to be picked. Yeah, without any further ado, uh, let's get into the episode about the Comic Book Code Authority. Ed, uh, you like comic books? I, yes, you you know the answer to that. That was totally a setup question. Oh, boy, howdy. But, do, you like, yeah. do you like comic books that are censored by their own uh, publishers? I'm sure that a lot of the comics that I love and enjoy have been censored by their own publishers, yes. Boy, howdy, yeah. Uh, today's topic is going to be about the Comic Book Code, also known as the CCA, Comic Book Code Authority. I've also titled this, Or Why My Dad Hates Adlai Stevenson. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to that story. Oh, you, you, bounce, you kind of bounced that off of me when we were talking yeah. about developing this. I really want to hear the details. Oh, there. it's it's in there. Uh, okay. it, it is not worth the journey. Uh, the journey <laughs> will, be, will, will be far more worth it okay. than, than, the, uh, than the actual payoff. But um, what do you know about Comic Book Code Authority? Well, um, it's a body um, that has shrunk dramatically in recent years. Uh, right now, I think Archie Comics, Bongo Comics, and I don't remember who the third one is. I want to say DC, but that's only because no. my hatred for DC is so strong <laughs> and I'm willing to believe they'd do anything. They uh, actually, no, they, they quit the day after Marvel quit. Well, of course they quit the day after Marvel right. quit. Right, but that's, I mean, they I quit. Mean, come on. And I want to say Archie quit, too. Oh, yeah. all right. Yeah. Okay, yeah, My the, the source in my research was... Yeah. was Oh, I might be out wrong. Of, out of date. I might be wrong. Well, you know, Wikipedia. So yeah, you well. know, I don't know. Could be, could be, could be meat. Could be cake. To quote so. George Carlin. Um, yeah, no, I know that it's it's shrunk a lot in recent years, mm-hmm. and I know that um, it was done. It was built, put together by all of the major comic book publishers at the time, mm-hmm. as a way to avoid uh, mm-hmm. government interference in their business practices yeah, it's kind of like you stop crying or i'll give you something to cry about like, yeah it, it it's, really, that's actually that's a great that's a yeah, great analogy uh, yeah. which uh yeah. my my moral stance has always been no you go ahead and give me something to cry about then because i want to look you in the eye when you do this uh knowing full well that uh i i fight losing battles all the time so i don't mind so uh I can do this all day <laughs> exactly that's why we get along that's oh one of the many reasons yeah. uh so prior to the comic book code actually comic books were uh, diverse, and they had something a little bit for everyone. Yeah. Um, they, they actually, it depends on how far you want to go back. I say go back to hieroglyphics. Uh, those were comic okay. books. In a way. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Actually, that makes sense. You know, yeah. tomb paintings. Right. And, yeah. you know, and it's, it's right. telling stories Let's of people. Go. Yeah. It's, right. You know, it's, it's, it's Rin Tin Tin chasing Trajan's column. All yeah. The way up to all column, right. I like know? it. I like it. Um, and they were also painted back then. I don't know if people know this, but like Roman frescoes and stuff like that were not just these white marble things. They were actually oh, yeah. painted. Really? Just, like like oh. in colors that make your eyes bleed to a modern day aesthetic. Like yeah, Tokyo what, without the neon. Yeah. You know? like, mm, really? Yeah. Just gaudy, like, gaudy holy colors. Holy cow. Yeah. There's, there's even talk of Roman statues appearing to breathe. That's how good their paint was. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's been left out in the sun for mm, 2,000 thousand years. years. Yeah. Plus. It, it yeah. bleaches. Uh, yeah. I had a shirt that did that once over a summer, you know. Yeah. I found it later on. I was like, oh, I guess I'm wearing pink now. Yeah, uh, but I had the uh, same thing happen with the sweatshirt. If you want to go forward uh, into the 1840s, you can probably <clears throat> kind of cite the first comic book that you see. It's um, in the 1840s. Uh, someone in America uh, compiled the adventures of Obadiah Oldbook into a book. 
Okay. Um, and Obadiah Oldbuck was a translation from a French comic book that was created in 1837 called, and this is all in French and I speak Latin, so I pronounce all my letters, uh, Les Amours de Monsieur Vieux Bois, which is... Vieux Bois. Sure. Sure. Yeah, okay. That's uh, I, Les Amours de Monsieur Vieux Bois. Okay, if anybody's listening who can explain uh, what the word heathen is in French, I'd appreciate it so I can throw that at him next um, time. I, I gotta say, I've, I've read this, um, and, and this is to comics what early title cards were to dialogue in silent films. Um, it was colorless, okay. it was dull, uh, it was very, very linear. Mm-hmm. Um, there were no real punchlines, there was no real drama. Mm-hmm. It, for instance... Uh, Obadiah Oldbuck, which I love that that was the name that they came up with from the French one. From, yeah. <coughs> um, but uh, Mr. Oldbuck, uh, he he loves a woman, he pines after her, mm-hmm. and he receives a negative response. That's it. Okay. And then, and then really? this. Yeah. And then, and then, and then I, and I quote directly, Mr. Oldbuck, in despair, commits suicide. Fortunately, the sword passes below his arm. For 840 hours, he believes himself dead. He returns to life, dying of hunger. Ha 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 ha. That's, 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 wow, really? It was, see, he didn't die, so he went on to starve. That's the joke. Wow. After five pages. Sweet Christ. Right. Yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah. You know, what, what I find interesting about that is... Just talking about the quality of that particular story, mm-hmm. which so, might have been compelling back then. Might uh, I don't well, know. Well, you know, here's the deal. I've 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 <laughs> read and and listened to enough uh, interpreters, uh, you know, present storytelling of of folk tales from mm-hmm. back before that time period. And mm-hmm. I got to tell you, they're a hell of a lot better than that. I don't know what. Yeah. You know, so so I, I think I think the thing that primarily made that novel was the fact that you know it had printed pictures, yeah, and and you know it was something you could buy in a in, a dead, in a dead tree form was distributable, and you Absolutely. didn't have to rely on you know bugging grandpa to tell you the story again. You could just pick it up and read it. I and think. you also had to be literate, and basically literate mm-hmm. might have been what they were aiming at. You know, kind of like if you look at uh, presidential speeches through the years, mm-hmm. different presidents speak at different levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see their appeal with a certain demographic of voters. Based I want on... you. I want everybody to note that I am not jumping in with a comment at this time about our current administration. And neither have I. Yeah, I was which, thinking which, of Andrew Jackson actually. Did, oh, with his oh, unique spellings of oh, I are smart. Yeah, well, you and know, I and, are uh, from a log cabin, and he was nice. a very yeah. He was, he was a very salty individual, but he was also very rich. So it's not like he couldn't afford tutors. Yeah. But uh, he was a mean fellow. Speaking well, of which, it's actually right. Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, it's right at this time, actually, mm. that the Obadiah Stone stuff comes out. Um, it's right around uh, the Jacksonian era. Okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, so it's it, after this, it's a series of him trying to kill himself for like many, many panels. Uh, really good shit for kids in the 1830s and 1840s to read. Yeah. Um, or anyone. Clearly, I guess. I, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Give you an idea as to what's going on in 1830s France. Uh, Louis Philippe the first is king. Okay, and he survives assassination attempt after assassination attempt after assassination attempt. He survives uprisings, revolts in various cities. 
uh, and he institutes a series of clampdowns on political expression. Mm. So it could be that this was one of the only outlets for people that was still acceptable. So you get kind of a, a blanding. Of what might otherwise it might have otherwise been a more entertaining story. Also, keeping you know in mind the idea that the overarching theme here is censorship. That makes sense, right? Um, so, just as a as a question, sure, kind of kind of a tangent. But Louis Philippe, mm-hmm. uh, I forget. Do you know was he a Bonaparte or was he was he one of the Bonapartist Restoration? No, eighteen eighteen twenties, eighteen thirties. No, okay, never yeah. mind. He's a he's a Bourbon. Forget yeah. it. Yeah. Forget it. Moving uh, on. In Sorry. 1839, the doggerotype was invented. Okay. Um, the first reliable camera. Yep. Uh, this is all leading up to 1848. So again, I just want to go back to the date. 1837, it's in French. 1840, it's in English. Okay. Uh, in 1848, which is a really fun year if you're down for revolutions. <laughs> um, it's, uh, oh man, you, you, you throw a dart and you'll hit a revolution. My point is, I guess, is that you've got a comic book about a bumbler trying to find love and also trying to kill himself kind of strangely fits into this period between the uh, the, the the 1815 clampdown on all things democratic and the 1848 explosion of all things democratic and right in between you have this really bland almost like this is part of the kindling that leads to yeah and I don't think it was necessarily hey they didn't give us our Monsieur Dubois or whatever his name yeah. was but but when you see art being this bland and suffering like this, usually a revolution's right around the corner. That, yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. I can I can see that connection. Um, I find it, yeah, no, I, I I I think the connection that you're drawing there, I I see what I see where you're going with it, yeah. and I and I, I I see what you what you think of that. I I think my own take on it. Is more in the direction of um, looking looking at it as as uh, what the causative relationships are. Sure. That you know the the two the two are being created essentially by the same source. Yeah, same society. That 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 you know Philippe and and the Bourbons uh, mm-hmm. and everybody involved in that particular hierarchy was desperate desperate to maintain the social order. Mm-hmm. Uh, for you know the sake of their own safety. Oh, absolutely. Um, and so anything that could potentially be subversive, anything that could potentially be in any way uh, involved in laissez majeste right, would be you know viciously tramped on. And and so similar yeah. to modern art in the 1950s is why we ended up getting abstract expressionism. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Jackson Pollock can thank uh, censorship for that. Yes. Really. Um, so it, it comes to America in 1840. Mm-hmm. Um, in America in the 1840s, some fun stuff happening. It's just ahead of the gold discovery out west. Yeah. Um, so therefore, it's just ahead of the Irish. It's also just yeah. ahead of the Mexican-American War. It's yes. It's just ahead of a huge influx of Chinese immigrants. Yes. There's a lot of things that are about to pop, and you have this bland little comic book that just kind of... Mm-hmm. You know, uh, a holdover from the era of good feelings, I guess, where you follow a bumbler trying to kill himself. Uh, if you want to skip ahead a little, we get to the 1930s. Uh, fun time mm-hmm. worldwide. Yeah. Uh, 1933 in America, uh, you get a book called The Famous Funnies. Now, by this point, you had comics in the, the newspapers mm-hmm. uh, for which I believe yellow German journalism was named. Well, yeah, it was uh, the yellow rag paper that got used by uh, Hearst and his ilk 
uh, because it was the cheapest stock they could get a hold of. Mm-hmm. Um, without going to hemp. W- without, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, which actually wouldn't have been that big a deal back then, but no, anyway, it's no. a topic for another time. Sure. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, the, the funnies became an integral part of everybody's reading experience, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, part of this this is going to tie in, I swear. But part of what uh, I find interesting about this whole arc mm-hmm. is when we're talking about the newspaper funnies. Here in the United States, that was what everybody assumed any kind of graphic art was going to be. I mean, for for forever. Yeah, it set the tone. Yeah, it set set the tone. Everything was, you know, essentially a four-panel, or back in the old days when, when, you know, they had more space to run the funnies. It was, you know, eight or nine sequential, but it was was strictly sequential art. And it was punchline comics. It was, you know, to take up... Everything was contained. Everything was contained. Everything, you know, took up space. A specific amount of space in, right. in the newspaper, and what's what's interesting is all of the developments that we that we kind of have all the expectations that we carry into the fifties and mm-hmm. and the CCA. I think kind of come from this cultural association that we have with comics and visual art is in the kids' ghetto. It's it's this yeah. children's medium. You know, everybody reads them, but right. you know, it's the part of the newspaper you hand off to your kids and it's it's relatively right. safe and relatively harmless. You know, never mind the amount of slapstick violence involved, you know, but yeah, but, you know, it's, it's, but it's socially sanitized. it's acceptable. Yeah, yeah it's sanitized. Absolutely. It's, it, whereas mm-hmm. and, and this is where I want to wind the clock back a ways, mm-hmm. the history of sequential art and 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 um uh, what we would call comics and yes. something like comics uh, in, in Asian, particularly in Japan oh. is very different. Mm. Um, and from the very outset um, sequential art that was being created there was being distributed to a very wide audience. So it of, wasn't made of for all, kids. It was not made for children. Oh. And, and so the cultural assumptions that they had in Japan, that they toward still that have art. in Japan, yeah. toward comic book art as a medium, right? Is it's it's a completely different, uh, a completely different kind of, of of outlook on it. So that leads to less panic about oh my god, what about the children? Yes, it, wow. well, it, yeah, okay. it leads it leads to less panic about what about the children. It leads to a culture in which uh, or or a, a medium. Mm-hmm. That is very expressly delineated. In this mm-hmm. is a comic book magazine, weekly comic book. You know, Shonen Jump sure. is a weekly, monthly. I'm not that up on you know it's the publishing, though, but it's, yeah. it's serialized. Uh, that is you know a collection of of graphic art stories that is specifically targeted to schoolboys. Oh, interesting. And then okay. there are other publications that are specifically targeted with stories for you know men in their late teens, early twenties. Sure. Uh, you know, romance comics. So that when you know, somebody comes big in, thing, somebody comes in complaining, saying, "Oh, well, what about the children?" The response like, would be, "What are you stupid? That's you, not you, for the kids." It, it'd be it'd be like somebody saying, "You know, uh, well, what are what are you publishing this smut for?" You know, my my four year old got a hold of it, and and them going, "Dude, that's a copy of Playboy." Right? Why did you? Why did you hand that to your kid? Right. You know. Yeah. Why did you, you know, leave it where they could read? Yeah. It? Lock that's lock it you. up. Lock it up in your armoire at the back where right. you're supposed to. Like you know, guys have done since the fifties. That's what Taking you're supposed notes to do. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I've already got it. Yeah. No. I just use a separate browser. Yeah. Uh, so uh, if I could pull us back to the 1930s, yeah. Sorry. Because they were so sorry. much fun. Yeah. Uh, so you have the famous funnies, which is essentially mm. they took 
comics from the newspapers and put them all in one book. And it was, I think it sold for about 10 cents uh, in 1933. Uh, these were in color, which is a first. Uh, they're still not very funny. Uh, and they're more of a, a collection of the funny pages. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a treasury than it is any kind of monographic comic book like what we would see today. Yeah. Uh, still, it's very cheap. It's very diversionary. And it, it's smack dab in the middle of the Great Depression. So mm -hmm. there, there is a need for keeping kids busy because you're traveling, because you're in the jalopy or, or what have you. <laughs> Uh, How did you find out about my grandmother's life? <laughs> well, you're in California. So yeah, well, uh, good point. Yeah. Uh, also in the 1933, I just want to give a little bit of uh, an idea as to what else is going on. The Golden Gate Bridge starts construction, yep. which interestingly I found out is not a WPA. It was not a work projects administration uh, oh. project, uh, but a lot of roads that led up to it literally were. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the infrastructure that went around it really were. Uh, also... In 1933, Pakistan is mentioned for the first time as Muslims in India start working toward having their own country. Nice. Uh, Hitler takes office in Germany, uh, mostly to make Germany great again. Uh, Chancellor there we have it, folks. There <laughs> we, we made it 15 minutes. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, but he did make those promises. I have pictures from my trip to Berlin. This oh. is me getting oh. to share that yeah. I went to Berlin. Uh, of him doing this. Uh, he Yes. Uh, he was Chancellor. Uh, and he delivers his proclamation to the German nation. And I just want to hit you with a quote of what was coming out in 1933. It begins, More than 14 years have passed since the unhappy day when the German people, blinded by promises from foes at home and abroad, lost touch with honor and freedom, thereby losing all. Well into his speech, he says that, quote, Communism, with its method of madness, is making a powerful and insidious attack upon our dismayed and shattered nation. He promises to end the nation's economic distress and attendant personal miseries and ends with, May God Almighty give our work his blessing, strengthen our purpose, and endow us with wisdom and the trust of our people, for we are fighting not for ourselves, but for Germany. Then he set the Reichstag on fire. Well, it well, gets he, set on fire. He didn't, like, literally right. hold the... Yeah. Yeah, but it gets set on fire, luckily. Yeah. Uh, and then... He what passes. was the name of the special prosecutor they 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 put together to investigate that fire? Uh, oh wait, no, they didn't have one. The, oh yeah, yeah, Why, yeah. Geez. Sorry, yeah, jeez. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, and then he passes the enabling acts, or he gets it passed, uh, claiming emergency powers, uh, a la Chancellor Palpatine. Um, opens up Dachau, uh, and eventually withdraws from the League of Nations. You know, because we don't need to be with this group of people that are our foes. Germany first, right? right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> He locks up and later releases a portion of over 200,000 people who are considered to be bad for Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, conservatives cheer him, uh, thinking that they can control him. So that happened in 1933. Wow. All I'm the so air suddenly we... went out of the room. <laughs> also, Lone Ranger started up as a radio play. Oh, nice. So there's there we that. go. You know? Yay. Uh, also, FDR took office, um, inaugurated in 1933, uh, starts his fireside chats. Oh, yeah. Um, the Dust Bowl and L.A. flooding begin, which I get a kick out of that because climate change is obviously a hoax. And because how can you have the Dust Bowl in one area and flooding in another? It just doesn't. It has to be uniform. Obviously. Like, it has to be like Hoth. Planet. Yeah. Right? Yes. Yeah. That, We're either going to wind up as Tatooine or Hoth. Yeah. There's, <laughs> you know, no, there's no way yeah. you could have different results. The snowball. <laughs> Right. Remember the snowball. You can hold a snowball. You can hold a snowball it in the capital. It can't be warming. Yeah. Uh, which is interesting because there's a guy who was, I forget his name, but he was a huge agricultural expert. 
and he was talking and giving a speech in front of Congress and one of his aides came up to him and they said, we need you to stretch it for another 20 minutes because there's a storm coming through and it was a sandstorm coming through to Washington from Kansas. Yeah. Um, you know, so... Oh, yeah, no, the, the, the... And so he had to stretch it until like the the dust blacked out Washington punctuating his speech and actually getting funding for what he wanted to do, which was planting a bunch of trees. Yeah. So no, the 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 firsthand accounts mm-hmm. of that are harrowing. Oh, I don't know yeah. if I don't know how There's much. It's a book called The Worst Hard Time. It's yeah, really good. Oh God, really Almighty! Good. People talking about you know actually believing. No kidding, this has to be the end of the world yeah. because the the sandstorms, dust storms were so bad that literally like the sun effectively did not rise mm-hmm. for days. Oh yeah, I, I you remember know, whole, reading whole whole. What was it? it Farmsteads was being buried under, I mean, just, oh. 12 million tons of dirt left Kansas and essentially silted Chicago. Yeah. And then a whole bunch of Kansas farmers moved to Chicago, I guess, to be with their their farms again. I guess. But also to get jobs. To try to get work. Right. Yeah. Uh, some oh, yeah. sweeping up the dust from their farms. Yeah. It's a, a bizarre thing. Uh, so yeah, comic books, huh? Yeah, it's, uh, good yeah. times. Good topic. Um, we're still a little ways away from comics, but we are starting to see sprinklings of them with the success of the famous Funnies, because it was successful. Now, uh, in June of 1938, we get to probably one of the most famous comic books there was. Um, Action Comics puts out Superman's very first appearance. Yep. Uh, this is Joel Siegel. I'm sorry, Jerry Siegel and Joel Schuster. And they write Superman's story. Um, and it's it's actually, it's not the whole comic. A lot of people think it's only about 13 pages out of a compilation. Um, and uh, the, the interesting thing I found there was that it was a throw-in. Like, they had tried to get it across many a time. And uh, they, people kept saying, this is ridiculous, this is ridiculous. And finally, they're like, well, we need to fill this much space. What do we got? Ah, try the Superman one. But it had been developed over a few years in my research, I found out um, that it's entirely possible that Superman was created as a reaction to Jerry Siegel's father's death during a robbery. Okay. When he was a that kid. Makes sense. Uh, and, um, I mean, basically his father dies, uh, and then he comes up with the idea of a bulletproof superhero. I mean, it, mm. just, it, it, it does make sense. It, it didn't even necessarily have to be, a, I'm going to fix my yeah, family well, with this, yeah. but just that was what was rolling through his head. Going through his mind, yeah. But, um, yeah, uh, he, uh, Jerry Siegel and Joel Schuster uh, tried to sell the idea from about 1933 onward, which I didn't realize it took five years. Yeah. Um, Finally, they sold it for $130 to DC, uh, with DC getting the rights, quote, forever. So they gave him $10 a page. Jesus. Which, uh, (laughs) there's there's a whole story in how long... It took for them to get for, any kind of For them of and their heirs to get any kind of anything. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Uh, but if you look at Superman, uh, yeah. and everybody's seen him. He's got his underwear on the outside. He's wearing tights. He's got a cape. He's all the primary colors. Mm-hmm. I mean, he really sets the tone for what we come to know as superhero comics. And superhero comics are, are they're in and then they're out. They're in and then they're out. Um, but he, uh, he, he looks honestly like the power lifters of the 1920s. Like if you go back and find the power lifters from the twenties, they're they're wearing full body stockings essentially. Yeah, well, because it'd be indecent not to. Oh, well, yeah. Come on. Uh, well, and unitards were for carnies, and that was an interesting uh, okay. thing too. All right. uh, but the cape made him any scenes with him running or jumping more dramatic. 
Yeah. Uh, he didn't fly at first. He could only no, jump. No, he jumped. Leap tall buildings in a single bound. Which ties in with him being super strong. Makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Uh, his original story ran for 13 pages, like I said, but in many ways it was the first superhero comic. Yeah. So, uh, like I said, is you know is is the first superhero comic, um, and actually from about 1938 to about 1945, you see superheroes really stepping onto the main stage. That is the thing everybody really digs is superhero comics, um, which kind of makes sense if you think about it because we need someone to save us from fascism, essentially. Yeah. Uh, and so Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. Uh, all very, very popular. From about 1938 to 1940, mostly, interestingly, because we weren't in the war yet, mostly these heroes took on gangsters. Yes. Um, and they took up corrupt officials, mm-hmm. bad cops, I want to make that point very clear, and yeah. a few robbers. And that's going to be important later as well. Yeah. You were well, yeah. well, just that, that uh, you know, that's, that's a really big element of um eventually in a few weeks hopefully what i what i want to talk about about the evolution specifically of batman Ooh, yeah um uh, because you know organized crime and and the issues that people were seeing in the news and the stuff that were that people were dealing with every day when i say seeing in the news i mean in the newspapers i know television wasn't widespread don't anybody write in complain about that in movie reels though well yeah this is true yeah yeah, but but a lot of the a lot of the you know really sensational stuff that was going on in current events at that time was organized crime related. You know this this is the period of time. This is by this time I think yeah we are post prohibition. Mm-hmm. But you know anybody who was an adult at that point had a had a memory of that's a good point. Uh, what had gone on with Al Capone, Machine Gun Kelly, sure all all the. Well, horrible, horrible violence, all that stuff going on. And just because you stopped alcohol didn't mean they didn't Did, find didn't other mean, rackets. Yeah, and they and they did find other rackets. Yeah. And and so, you know, the the you know, somebody who had abilities that you didn't have to stand up to these, you know, shadowy figures of corruption, these people mm-hmm. who had enough money and power to avoid the law, yeah. you know, to, to avoid consequences was was a very important part of I think the 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 common power fantasy yeah. during that time period because there there was this very clear inequality between people who had access to get consequences for people who hurt them and mm-hmm. most everybody else who didn't. That's a good point. So just throwing that one out there. Absolutely. Uh, in October 1939, the Human Torch and the Submariner both appear in Marvel comic number one. Now, this is not Johnny Storm. This is the android that is called Ooh. the Human Torch, whose name I forget, um, but it's not important. He's an android, um, <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't go anywhere very far after this. Yeah, well, yeah, because he got he got taken over. The, the identity of the Human Torch got taken over by Johnny Storm about twenty plus years, twenty four years, twenty four years later. Yeah, later, yeah well, you know, the sixties. But you know, he's the one but everybody still, remembers, and absolutely. you know, and Captain America played him in the movie. So also, that's a lot better. It's a sad moment in history. Well, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, but so they were uh, they weren't quite heroes. Neither of them were really quite heroes. Now I found that interesting too. They were not paragons of virtue. They were, in some ways, agents of chaos themselves. But they put aside their enmity toward humanity and helped the Allies fight the Nazis and the Japanese. Mm-hmm. Which makes a lot of sense if you think Submariner, he's, he's all about the ocean and stuff. 
that's our fight against the Japanese. That's yeah. our fight against Germany. I mean, we've got, you know, oceans on both sides, lucky yeah. us. Uh, in March of 1941, but it was actually released in December of 1940. But they, they go by cover date. Yeah. Was March 1941, even though it's, it's I've never understood yeah, cover date. I dates. don't, neither do I. Joel Simon and Jack Kirby, uh, they they make a comic book with uh, a, a gentleman dressed in, in star-spangled attire um, <laughs> named Captain America. And on the cover, he is punching Hitler. Again, in the face. In the face. Again, this is released in December 1940. Hey, man, get your SJW crap out of my comic books. <laughs> Which I love. Knock that off. <laughs> right. Uh, this makes Antifa cool before it was even national policy. <laughs> it's, uh, and they did this on purpose, by the way, uh, because they knew that Nazis were a bad idea. These guys figured it out in 1940. Uh, but that's Captain America. Most superheroes are fighting the Nazis or Japanese. Several of them have a teenage sidekick, which I thought was interesting. It was just kind of the publisher's way of bringing kids trying in to, more. Yeah, it was it was a way of you know trying to give uh, younger readers somebody to identify with. Yeah, you know it's 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 the old marketing ploy that you know same same marketing ploy that decades later gave us the Ewoks mm. um, to get the you know the to get to get little market. kids. Yeah. yeah, well, yes. It's a bullish market. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, nice. I like it. No, the, the you know, the, the psychological foundation underpinning behind it is, you know, yeah. a little kid is, is going to, a younger child is going to identify either with the smallest thing in the frame yeah. or the biggest thing in the frame. That's true. And That's so, you know, throw something small and childlike or youthful right. in there and that'll be like, you know, I can be like Robin. I can be like, you Bucky. know, yeah, Superboy. Yeah. Yeah. No, it makes less, sense. The less, I think for for a variety of reasons, the less said about Bucky, the better. <laughs> um, I, I think I think the the Marvel Cinematic Universe did did the right thing with with how they did Bucky. I and, agree. And what happened in the mists of time should be reobscured by the mists of time. Well, and, you got to also keep in mind comic books in the forties are different than movies in the two thousand. Well, yeah, no, like, society was very different. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I, I I understand. They were fighting Nazis. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Most superheroes at the time were fighting Nazis or yeah. the Japanese. Uh, was not very kind in terms of racial uh, politics at all. I got to call that you out. You know, if you can if you can find a picture of a Japanese soldier or especially a Japanese officer in mm-hmm. a comic book from the 1940s who looks like a human, who looks non simian, I will give you money. Non simian, yeah. and and is not wearing big Coke bottle lens glasses. Yes. Then, then, yeah, or or and and does not need significant orthodontic treatment. Yes, yes, and and you know, and the thing is, another aside because that's what sure. I'm doing during this this particular podcast. But um, growing up, I was I, I I had the privilege, the mm-hmm. true privilege, of being surrounded by a very diverse population of of other kids oh you you lived in reading yeah nice no i i, I well san diego and okay. hawaii specifically okay, specifically i grew up yeah naval town i grew up yeah i grew up i grew up surrounded by other navy kids and uh you know the schools that i went to were full of navy kids and not navy kids and so the the stereotypes that we see in these media from the 40s of asians in particular uh never made sense to me because it's not what that's not saying. that's not what my friends in school looked like. None of their parents looked like that. Why, you know, I to this day as an adult, I actually have to think about 
oh, well, they're all wearing Coke bottle lenses because they're squinting. Right. No, they're not. <laughs> Asshole. You know. Yeah. And, you know, and, and within the context of, you know, the whole nation being mobilized for a war against, you know, a nation state that was made up primarily of, you know, this one ethnic group. Oh, yeah. I understand how that, how that, how that happened. And why it was effective. And why it was very effective. But, you know. Doesn't make it right. Still, well, and, and it doesn't, and it, and it still just doesn't make sense to me. But, yeah. So, anyway, sorry. So, yeah, my no, aside there good. on that. This is what we do here. Yes, yeah, it's uh, true. Good point. So, uh, the, the interesting thing was is that um, these comics were made both for children and adults. It yeah. helped with morale overseas yeah. uh, with our soldiers uh, and our sailors. And it also helped kids to remember why dad was gone or why mom worked in the factory or why there were scrap iron drives. It wasn't just to get the nickel. Or why they were working in in the backyard building, you know, maintaining a victory garden. Yeah, all those things. So it was really important. Um, And so the artists and writers, I mean, they're answering a market need, ultimately. Um, Both reflecting and helping shape the culture. And they knew what was going on. So uh, they they were mirroring what was happening, by the way, in movies. And, And I really want to make this connection to movies. In the 1940s, uh, certain kinds of comedy died away. Slapstick comedy uh, was kind of always hovering there, but screwball comedy was gone uh, by 1942. I mean, it's, it's just, it's had its day and it's gone. Um, and I might do an, an episode about screwball comedy. I'd, yeah, I'd be um, interested in But it's it was that. really quite something. Um, but what you do see a lot of are war movies, you know? And not just the Why We Fight Newsreels by Frank Capra, but we're like... Actual war movies where, where superheroes are, are, are movie stars yeah. and they're fighting the Japanese and they're fighting the Nazis and, and or they're, you know, they're on the margins of these fights. Oh, yeah. Well, it's it's I, I don't want to say that's the peak of that genre, but it's certainly um, certainly where that genre really kicked in a high gear. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd say probably the peak of the war movie genre is the 50s and 60s. Yeah, to justify off, off why top, we still the top have of the my, military. Well, one, to justify why we still do, and also, you know, for, for you know, the, the I don't want to say nostalgia value, but, you know, for, for yeah, I guess that's it's the best nostalgic. word I can think yeah. of. It's, it's, it is, you know, it's, it's the... Uh, the war movies in the '40s were explaining why it is, why we're doing this, what's going on, and creating and creating entertainment drama out of that. Right. And then into the '50s and into the '60s, it then turned into myth making. Because if you look yeah. at uh, Audie Murphy mm-hmm. and his film career, right. As you know, and the biggest thing that made him an actor was the fact that he was the most decorated soldier in U.S. history. Yeah. Um, you know, and then the movie Go for Broke, which I don't know if you're familiar with. I'm not. Okay, growing, spending several years growing up in Hawaii with a very large Japanese American population, Go for Broke, and and the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. Okay, yeah. Were a very very big deal. Go for Broke was their their battle cry. Oh, okay. And that the 442nd was not the only, but it is the best known yes. of the regiments that were formed out of young men who who were, were brought imprisoned. out of yes who were imprisoned and one of the ways they could get out was right. to join the army and fight interestingly in Europe right but uh, they actually used uh, Japanese 
as mm-hmm. a as a code method that the Germans would have a hard time breaking. Which is interesting because we also sent Native Americans over to the Pacific, mm-hmm. also who were kind of imprisoned. Kind of, yeah, the guy the, who came less up explicitly, with the, but yeah, you <laughs> the know. guy who came up with the internment camps idea was a former uh, BIA yeah. uh, official. I um, had not known that. Yeah, but, and okay. so then we sent them over there. And then, yeah, yeah it well, just, you know, oh, imperialism, that's, that's what empires oof. have done throughout history. But Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. that's a really good point. So, actually. you know, look at... The Shirme system. Yeah, well, yeah. and, and look, at, look at how the Scots got sent everywhere in the goddamn world as, you know, I the bleeding edge. for, for as the, West Virginia. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's... It's yeah. Awful. Yeah. Uh, so. So yeah. Comic books. Though. Yeah. Back to. Uh, so the connection between movies and comic books really starts up there, I think, um, because you have serialized uh, episodes of Captain America, of Batman, of Superman. Yeah. These little shorts, and, and it's happening on multimedia. It's a multimedia platform. It, it might be one of the first that you see, and that really leads into the post-war time. Uh, with yeah. so so the war happens. The main focus of the war is fighting fascism. That's what could destroy us. Either a Japanese version or a German version. That's what could destroy us. After the war, this thing happened um, twice. Uh, atomic bombs dropping. Yes. Well, we, we you say after the war. It's very tail end. Of the well, war. yeah, yeah. That but, happened. Okay, yeah. And then after the war, yeah. there was a tremendous anxiety about atomic anything. Yeah. Um, Huge, huge, and 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 the anxiety was post-war. There's another uh, country that's also trying to get that same nuclear capability, and then they end up getting it. And now the fear is that we're all going to be annihilated. Yes, it's it's now it's now actually like a meaningful existential threat. threat. Yeah, it is. It is literally an existential threat. Whereas fascism was, it's a new world order. It will wipe out a lot of people on the way, but it wouldn't end all of humanity. I mean, I think philosophically it does depend on that. It's self-devouring, yeah. but but I could I could see them stretching yeah. that out for yeah. a long time. But uh, atomic war is atomic war. Like, yeah. boom, we're done. Yeah, nuclear, our understanding a, a nuclear exchange. Time, yeah, a, yeah, a nuclear exchange. Um, you know, the physics of a nuclear exchange mm-hmm. are are such that you know. Um, Certainly, if it didn't wipe out all life, or all human life on the planet, it would send us all back into a new Stone Age. I yeah. mean, there's, it, it, would, it would be because of the nature of the weaponry. And, you know, the thing is, the guys that were responsible for developing all of it were, mm-hmm. were in the vanguard of saying, okay, hey, look, <laughs> uh, we've we got to be real careful about yeah. this, you know. And um, I grew up um, with... Well, in a military household. Okay. And, you know, with the understanding that mutually assured destruction mm-hmm. was inevitable. Not meaning not, not not that not that the destruction was inevitable, right. but that the particular kind of Mexican standoff that we had going on right. with the Soviet Union was 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 not something that, that historically could have been avoided. And and oh, you know, that that you know the moment because the moment you develop this technology, everybody else is going to want the technology. Right. And the moment that happens, you are in an arms race. Right. And the only the essentially the 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 only way to maintain stability is in stalemate. 
is right. in this system where it and is a tense stalemate. Too. Yes, a a yeah. really. I mean, my dad was was you know living in Miami during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Wow. Well, wait, hold on. No, Cuban Missile Crisis. He was. He might have been in Florida, but you know he was. You know, uh, he his his hometown was Miami. Okay. And so wherever he actually was, I'd actually have to ask him because by that time. But he was still connected. He was to in the navy. But he was still that, yeah. he was still connected to you know uh, this this town that was you know right right on the on the end of the match. You know when everything when everything was. I like that metaphor up. better than what I was thinking of. Like, yeah, well, you know. Uh, <laughs> say that Michigan is a hand. Yeah, well, you know. Um, it's a hooked nose, maybe? Sure. It's a nation's sure. I got in trouble with my grandma once with that. <laughs> she's, she's from Michigan. Okay. And she said, you know, when God rested, he put his hand down, and, and that's why we have Michigan. And I, being 11 and not having a filter yet, believe it or not, I have one now. I said, really? Then how do you explain Florida? So, no dessert for me. Yeah. <laughs> so... That but is, so your that, dad that was so the, you. the tip of the arrow, as it yeah. Were. Well, yeah, as as it were, and um, you know, and and at the time he was, let's see, Cuban Missile Crisis was sixty four. Nah, sixty one. Sixty one. No, no, sixty two. You're right. Sixty two. Okay, things was sixty one. Okay, so at actually he was forty four, sixty two. He he was trying to remember what time of year he may have actually just graduated high school so yeah he just graduated high school Mm -hmm. he was attending college in tallahassee at the time he was still in florida so i think the really sad part about that is that he was attending college in tallahassee yeah well yeah so having heard about tallahassee (laughs) i have to agree with you but um you know and and my mother Mm -hmm. talking about the paranoia and the fear that everybody had during that time my mother was uh i mean at the time of the cuban missile crisis she would have been 17 sure uh but as a child growing up in the 50s she had nightmares about oh, yeah. the reds well they had coming drills. coming well yeah but 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 specifically her her nightmares were the reds mm-hmm. uh showing up and torturing her father Wow. and in her dreams because everybody talked about the reds the reds the reds the reds and of course you know adults understood that was shorthand for the soviets right who are people right my mother, as a you know six year old in sure. in the fifties, didn't understand that this was other people. She just heard the Reds, and she, you know her subconscious created these monsters that sure. you know. And she she says you know nowadays she says that that thinking about those dreams they were oddly kind of camel shaped, and and not oh, human. They were right. monsters. You know the Reds because there was no there was no human context attached to what she was hearing. I want to loop into that in just a second. Yeah. Go ahead and finish your story. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's basically it. Is okay. is just you know, they're they're this this new military technology, this new mm-hmm. ability to destroy everybody on the planet either right. instantaneously or over the course of a couple of years with nuclear winter, um, was was all pervasive. You know, my parents grew sure. up on opposite ends of the country. Okay. You know, my mother was the daughter of an Okie in California, mm-hmm. and my father was in Florida. You know, a much more bourgeois upbringing. You know, sure. um, and and they both carried and still carry. I mean, if if you talk to them about stuff, I mean, they're about that, yeah. they're well, their their attitudes about communism, socialism, any of those related sorts of isms, they're all colored by that experience. Absolutely. And you know, based on the stuff that Stalin did and the way that was, you know, yeah, you know, it's yeah. it's it's meaningful, you know. Um, 
it's it's something that I think we we need to well, keep also, in mind. Also, based on the the things that we were told. I mean, the yeah. newsreels. I have DVDs of old newsreels mm. called uh, Mental Hygiene. And there's all kinds of stuff. I mean, you know, there are very few high school history teachers who don't show the duck and cover videos. And oh, just yeah. the ridiculousness of that. My dad was a, a, a child in the 1950s as well. Um, and he remembers the duck and cover drills. And he remembers thinking at the time. And, you know, we tend to remember ourselves as smarter than we were. So yeah. I don't know if he actually thought this at the time, but I'll give him credit for it. Uh, he remembers at the time thinking, what's the point yeah. of ducking and covering if it's an atomic bomb? Uh, and so you're, you've got that with the kids, and at the same time, these kids have more access to funds than yeah. any generation prior. So after yeah. World War II, the everyone stops being afraid of large groups of fascists with guns, the Nazis and the Japanese. They've lost, so superheroes don't need to do their thing anymore. And superheroes dwindled in importance because the threat uh, was a much more generalized threat. Okay, uh, and and atomic bombs made it so death wouldn't come from a particular front; it would just come from above. Um, and a Orbit. decision, yeah, and a decision made somewhere else that has no connection to you whatsoever. So death was highly probable and effervescent, and and always with you. Mm-hmm. And uh, communism was a threat that no one could really define. You know, your your mom was afraid of the Reds. No idea what the, that really means. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it was just really menacing and scary. Also, TV was a thing that was starting to come out. People yeah. had access to money uh, because of the GI Bill and because of uh, a number of things, not, not the least of which the, the rest of the world was bleeding to death. So we were selling them all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. The kinds of movies that got really big in the 1950s were monster movies. And you had the monster movie showcase. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, with the giant ants. <laughs> yeah. All kinds of atomic, everything gets bigger. But also revisiting old monsters because of that fear of going back to the Stone Age, the, the Wolfman. Uh, um, and also revisiting the idea of people who are making decisions about our lives that we have no control over, Dracula. Um, and you start to have all of these <clears throat> monster genres really popping up in a big way in the 1950s. Um, and it helps us tap into our anxieties as a culture and release them a little bit. And kids could now take a nickel down. Well, it's probably a dime. But take a dime down to the, to the movie house on the weekend and I don't know by the 50s it might have been a quarter that'd be something it could have been up. but but know, yeah either way they, they uh, can yeah. go down there. Yeah, they, they have disposable down. income they have yeah and you know that way mom finally gets a rest um, mm-hmm. you know dad can have a nooner with his secretary or whatever and <laughs> and <laughs> well, so, you know, dad Dad would have been, in that time period, dad would have been, you know, doing whatever he wanted to do in the middle of the day anyway, because it's not like he was expected to stay home and look after the kids. That's ever. also really good. He was probably down at the lodge. He was probably down at, he oh, was down so, at the lodge yeah. or the VFW. Yes. Because we're talking about the 50s. And that's true. Everybody was in the VFW because everybody, everybody had, been had been drafted. drafted. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know, um, but monster movies are huge, and yeah. so kids get to go away for a couple hours, tap into that anxiety, and release that tension just a little bit. And since TV and movies uh, were somewhat limited in the sex that they could depict and the horror that they could depict, because you watch them, they're very, very vanilla. Um, because yeah, by of our, the by our code, standards, by our standards, oh, yes, yeah. because of yes, haze code, which is comics were a place that were not regulated, um, and they were cheap. And but there is a problem that I'm going to get to in a minute. So 
Um, I skip ahead to 1954. I know that you've got some stuff that you wanted to address through the 50s as well. Uh, yeah. Well, the, so, you yeah. know, the uh, going going back to talking about the Reds, going sure. back to talking about you know this this ever present kind of threat. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we see during this time period over and over again is the insecurity mm-hmm. that that people have. There's this, like we talk about the the the. Everybody's going to die in a in a in a fusion or fission blast. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also at the same time because safety is so tenuous because you know we're we're balancing on a knife edge and we know that if we get the advantage in the arms race, if if we find you know the secret bullet, we're not going to use it first. Right. But if they get the edge or they figure it. out how to overcome us. They are going to use it first because they're them. We're us. That's the way. That's why we have to keep at it. That's why we have to keep at it. You know, and thus you have the the missile gap. Mm-hmm. The whole the whole controversy about the missile gap. That's the reason you have uh, the amount of hysteria. That's a good word for it. That that um, was tied in with Alger Hiss. Yes. And the Rosenbergs. You know and. Actual spies. It's, it's understandable. Yeah, actually, yeah. F- honest to God, working for a foreign power, not not unlike people in our current right. government today. Um, but you know the the Rosenbergs. Mm-hmm. We we now know how they really were actually spying. Alger yeah. Hiss. Uh, you know, in, in Britain, it was Kim Philby who didn't get right. caught until a long time later. Well, and the worst um, thing for that hysteria is to actually find proof that you were right. That, that, well, yeah, because, because even when you're paranoid, even if you are paranoid, doesn't mean they're not out to get you. Right. And the moment you find even the smallest iota of evidence that, got, that it was genuine, then you have the, the anecdote. whole, all of it, all of it is uh-huh. justified. Uh-huh. All of it is totally justified. And so, needs to be ramped up. And needs, yes. And for God's sakes, we need to do more to stop it. So even before McCarthy, mm-hmm. There was McCarthyism. Yep. You know, it was... It's, well, you know, McCarthy learned. Yeah, well, from, yeah, from, from other people. But, you know, in, in, in 47, you know, was the first reference to, you know, mm-hmm. the House, you know, people in the House talking about, you know, communist fellow travelers yep. within government. Do you remember, by the way, what man who later became president was in on one of those committee meetings? Oh, Nixon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just, oh. You know, oh, Nixon was up to his thing. neck in it. I also want to point out that uh, Bobby Kennedy mm-hmm. was involved. Um, you know, everybody on the, on the other side. Yeah. Everybody was tied. Well, you're absolutely right, yeah. though. Bobby you know, Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, future Attorney General of the United States, guy in charge yeah. of the FBI. Yeah. Well, and and when we start talking about McCarthy, I want to get talking about the Kennedys, mm-hmm. Bobby and Jack, and him momentarily because I think it's worth repeating. So there's this terrible, terrible fear mm-hmm. of the enemy within. Right, mm-hmm. and so the enemy within is Alger Hiss. It's the Rosenbergs. It's uh, invasion of the body snatchers. Yes, you know, in popular culture, that's op- I mean, the 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 metaphor there is is an anvil being dropped yeah. on you. I mean, you know, that's not the only thing people were afraid of in that same vein, though. Mm. You talk about teenagers. You talk mm-hmm. about kids suddenly having all this free time on their hands. You, you talk about them suddenly and access to having access and to funds and mm-hmm. being outside of the home, the parlor. Out, yeah, they're not. They're they're out doing stuff. They have each other. cars for the first time. They have each other for the first time. They have and. 
popular culture all of a sudden undergoes this seismic shift. And they're also valued for the first time. Well, yeah. I mean, they're really... The amount of households that have three children tripled. The amount of households in the 50s that had four children quadrupled. Mm -hmm. Uh, Easy to remember. Yeah. Um, But uh, the amount of value placed on the children. These baby Mm -hmm. boomers were raised with the idea that they were valuable. Which was not true of their parents. It was not true of any generation prior to them. That they were valuable members they were they were they were they were future kids. labor and they yeah. were kids and they were urchins and you know, yeah we'll build you a playground so you shut up but yeah it's all gonna be on concrete hope you don't die <laughs> you know so so you have all of that that yeah. seismic shift is is coupled with the idea that these children are actually worth valuing yeah the thing is there's there's this weird ambivalence mm-hmm. because on the one hand they're worth valuing for the first time mm-hmm. and oh my god there are hordes of them <laughs> you know, I mean, the the, the, the oh, baby boomer throng. The amount of leather biker movies that came out of young teenagers. You're absolutely right. Okay. They're scary. Mm-hmm. Now, you and I will agree, because we work with teenagers. They're very scary. They're terrifying. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, on a one-to-one look punk kid, you know, kind yeah. of level, they're not. But as 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 the Reds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Contemplated as, you know, the Reds. If they ever recognized how much power they could have by organizing. Yeah, you know, then, yeah. man, you know, like anybody. If anybody well, that, realized, yeah. you know. <laughs> and and so they're they're spending more time out of the house. Yep. They're spending, they're, they have money. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, this is the first generation that has access to cars almost as a matter of course. Sure. Once they become teenagers, because everybody now with the prosperity that that you know the U.S. was going through at the time, and and you know what's good for Detroit is good for America. Yeah. You know Chrysler, GM, Ford. I mean, you know, cars became a part of being a middle class household. Thank you for mentioning class because I was going to say we say everybody, and what we're talking about is the dominant culture at the time. Yeah. The dominant culture at the time is white middle class America. Yes. Because there are so many uh, other groups that were kept away from this. Yes. In so many ways. Granted. So it, Good it, point. it's one of those that's, things we just need yeah, to remember. Yeah, you know, no, that's, that's remember, admittedly as, you know, a, a middle, white, class, middle class white kid. Yeah. yeah, that's, okay, blind spot. Yeah. You're right. Uh, but for for the majority culture, for for the dominant culture mm-hmm. at the time, uh, this, this was the norm yeah. and this was a new norm. Yes, this was not the way, like the silence. That was not the way they'd grown up, sure. and and they wanted on, on at the same time they wanted to give their kids this experience mm-hmm. of not having to immediately, you know, start working in the family shop right after school all yep. the time. They wanted their kids to have things they didn't have, but at the same time, their kids kids don't have judgment what are they going to do with all this time and so there was this panic mm-hmm. about juvenile delinquency there was this panic about kids going out young men particularly and it's it's interesting to note that at this time talking about what you say about people being kept out of the dominant culture mm-hmm. you don't see in in the depictions of juvenile delinquency you don't see african-american or hispanic sure. kids you don't see asian kids being portrayed as the leather jacket wearing right you know uh toothpick in their mouth greasers you know greaser culture was white, white kids. kids yep 
you know, um, in in Great Britain, Teddy culture, uh, Soch culture. I mean, all, yeah. all these all these subgroups. These were working class, but white. Right, you're very right. And and uh, you know, for for inclusion of of minority groups, you have to go into later youth movements in mm-hmm. in Europe. And and I mean, today you don't you don't hear about black preppies you don't hear much about i mean you're you're starting to hear thankfully we're starting to hear more about black nerds right you know because they they're here Mm -hmm. and welcome just as nerdy you know just as nerdy as the rest of us you know but but in the media that was being created at the time these were all kids from the dominant culture gone bad and there was this terrible fear that you know while you're not looking right your kid could be out, you know, doing horrible stuff. Well, interestingly, you start to see that mixture coming in with music. Yeah. Uh, with rock and roll music specifically. Yes. Uh, which itself is incredibly integrationalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then you see white middle class society just go ape shit about it. Like yeah. they come off the rails being afraid of what's going to happen when black and white kids dance together. Yeah. Uh, with, with music that is blending... Uh, white country with black rhythm and blues like that's an enormous yeah shot across the bow to yeah. the dominant culture and rockabilly was terrifying yeah it was just it was just insane all right so we are um getting toward this idea of juvenile delinquency we're yes. getting toward this idea of we need to be afraid of the children yeah. and we need to be afraid Terrified for the, the children. children yeah uh which is is interesting to me because it kind of taps into this freudian aspect which ties back to latin grammar is that fear and desire are intrinsically linked they're yeah. two sides of the same coin i'm afraid that the werewolf will eat me is the same thing as saying i hope that the werewolf does not eat me the thing that you are afraid of is the thing that you hope doesn't happen. The thing that you hope for is the thing that you're afraid of won't happen. So uh, what better way to tie in fear and desire than in these horror comics, uh, which in, in, encapsulate both the, the fear of the savagery, the fear of, of the horror with the sexuality. Uh, the fear and, of the axe-wielding yeah. lunatic uh, combined with the... Uh, lurid sensuality of the woman de- being depicted as his victim. Indeed. So, to, in, you know, pick a very trenchant specific <laughs> example. And she's always a redhead. That always bothered me. Um, was she? Very often uh, the, the, because... The, 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 cover, the cover I'm specifically thinking uh-huh. of, was, I think, was a blonde. Oh, I'd okay. have to... Because I'm just thinking four there, color comics. Because there's, there's a story from the hearings that, that oh, I want right. to talk about. Cool. Yeah. And uh, we're going to get to that in our next episode. Uh, okay. Because we've, uh, we've, we've made this a two-parter. Digressed. Uh, which is fine. I, I'm having a lot of fun with it. Yeah. But uh, this definitely needs to be a two-parter. So this has been the first episode uh, dealing with the CCA. We haven't even gotten to the CCA. Uh, but we've laid all the groundwork for it. And uh, I hope that you tune in next time uh, for episode two. So here we are at the midway point in our discussion of the CCA and its development. Damien, what do you think is your big takeaway so far? So far, I've noticed the, uh, even though I brought up the, the, the fear and uh, the horror movies and stuff like that, um, I, I didn't realize how pervasive the hysteria was. And I think that word yeah. you use, hysteria, was a really apt term. Uh, throughout the entire American culture at the time. And honestly, like looking at how you and I were raised, the shadow of the Cold War that we were raised in 
by people who grew up with that fear. That's going to have an impact on how we're raised and what we hope for. And so just oh, yeah. seeing those points connecting was quite something. How about Definitely. you? I think the just the research that you did uh, on the history of the development of the medium of comics prior to the CCA uh, and tying into what what the movements were in society with the stuff that was going on uh, was a new window for me because I knew a little bit about what comics were like before the CCA, but understanding the details of that history is... Uh, Definitely an, an eye-opener for nice. me. I like it. Since I, I don't have anything to plug, but I do want to fix my error from earlier. Honor in the Dust. Theodore Roosevelt, War in the Philippines, and the Rise and Fall of America's Imperial Dream is by Greg Jones. And it is a truly compelling work of uh, history. I highly recommend it. Um, it is, it, it, yeah. I, I could go on for a long time, but what, what do you got going on? I look forward to reading a few more good books, including one called Star Wars and the History of Transmedia Storytelling. Yeah, that's the look that nice. I had on my face, too. Okay. Um, for those of you who don't have a television for this podcast, uh, I got the, the Big Bug Eyes by Ed, so it was, it was good. Very very akin to Janine from Ghostbusters at that one go. moment. Uh, but other than that, yeah, that's that's kind of all the pluggables that I've got going on. So, yeah, that's about it. I hope that you all enjoyed this episode. Uh, for Ed Blaylock, I'm Damian Harmony, and this has been A Geek History of Time. <laughs>